It's a delight of high order indeed that we each have today to come together like this. A beautiful Lord's Day morning in which we can, of course, fulfill that wonderful commandment and privilege of coming before God in His presence and to offer worship to the very one who deserves it so much and so beautifully. Isn't it true that God is greatly to be feared of the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him? Psalm 89 verse 7. As we continue a series of lessons or start a series of lessons today, it's somewhat of interest to note that you and I are urged and commanded, given such great influence to study and rightly divide that beautiful New Testament. In fact, all of the Word of God. As that challenge is set before us, some thoughts might well be utilized and mentioned that can help us as we think about what's involved in rightly dividing the Word of Truth. That text to which we've already referred in 2 Timothy 2.15 still urges us and commands us to give diligence, to study as the King James puts it, with the intent and purpose to be, ultimately, to make ourselves approved unto God as we rightly divide His will and His Word. The study of God's Word is such a beautiful opportunity for us, even as we had in Bible class this morning, and even as from day to day we personally involve ourselves in a study of His will. It might well be asked, what would be some good things that may aid me and you that we might study more carefully, more diligently, and in a way to be more effective? As we begin a series of lessons today, let me submit that we might discuss in a brief way the main themes and messages of all the New Testament books, strive to incorporate them into our thinking, and then when we are in need of studying a given passage or idea, we might be able to more readily turn to a given book or consider it more quickly and thus be affirmed in what we would like to learn and to read about. An overview of the New Testament. It would be perhaps a bit lengthy for us to try to overview all 27 books on one sermon, so we're going to make three of it. We'll strive beginning today to discuss each of the 27 books, perhaps briefly highlight the major themes and ideas of each, and again, hopefully, to be better suited and grounded in appreciating what is so special and remarkable about these the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve. In making no that observation... I've listed what may be some interesting statistics as we start that study. First, that New Testament that we're so beautifully presented with is by far the richest and most powerful document the human family has ever been able to appreciate. No other book in history has the power and richness within it that this one does. It consists of some 27 individual books but bound together by one golden thread that we shall see ever so quickly in a moment. Those 27 books have some 260 chapters, 7,957 verses. To look at it from that perspective, these 260 chapters, however, have within them the earmarks that they were written by ultimately one divine personality. Though eight human writers actually put pen to paper and put them to, to, to the practice for you and me, the Holy Spirit guided them in that writing. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we're reminded that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As thus the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of these holy Scriptures, the men merely held the pen, the Holy Spirit dictated the words, 
as those words were thus written for you and me, our urge and our challenge to rightly divide them leads us to see the goodness of appreciating the major ideas of each one of these books. To perhaps state it in that fashion and to start us in that way, we will today attempt to look at the first two divisions of the New Testament. The 27 books can be rather systematically and logically divided into four categories or groups. There are the four gospel accounts, Matthew through John. There is the single New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. There is following that 21 epistles, Romans through Jude. And finally, the single book of New Testament prophecy, the book of Revelation. We today will attempt to look at the thrust of the first four books together with the book of Acts in an overview fashion, looking at the major ideas to be found within each one of them. I might also find it interesting to observe that those five books total 117 of the 260 chapters in the New Testament. By way of percentage, that brings it to roughly some 45%. I believe our work shall be well to our advantage, though, to make note of what is in these books. And so, without further ado, let's set the stage for where the gospel accounts find themselves in the heart of the New Testament. One might well begin by asking, why did the Holy Spirit see fit to preserve for us four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? After all, there's only one book of New Testament history. Why wouldn't one gospel account have been enough? May I at least offer three potential suggestions? First, the gospel accounts chronicle the single greatest life ever to have been lived, and in fact, the only perfect life ever to have been lived. That thought alone leads us to perhaps see another idea behind these gospel accounts, and that idea is this. As those gospel accounts are of the greatest life ever, the life of Christ, these accounts substantiate and corroborate one another. They're in essence different viewpoints of the single greatest life ever to have been lived. Absolutely sinless in every regard. Perhaps thirdly, might we never forget that these books in their initial writing were directed to different audiences. And that thought will be helpful to us as we see an overview of these books this morning. With those ideas, however, behind us, let's start with the book of Matthew. The very first book in the New Testament, that book, the Gospel account according to Matthew, is a scintillating account consisting of 28 chapters. And in those chapters, we specifically see Jesus presented from the viewpoint in regard to his life for Jewish audiences. We might remember that was the Jew of the first century. All of us today are benefited, though we be not Jews, of course, here at Pippin, but we be benefited by having all of these gospel accounts at our disposal. For those of the first century who came out of Hebrew background, who were knowledgeable of the law of Moses and who considered it the thoroughfare to God, in order for them to have any concern and any great confidence in Jesus, he would have to be shown to them to be the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. He would need to be shown to them to be the promised Messiah, the very fruit and seed of Abraham and David. To see all of that leads us to note that Matthew, the writer of that gospel account, he himself was initially a publican, Matthew 9, verses 1 and following. 
But amazingly enough, he was called and became an apostle and is listed in all the lists, all four of them in the New Testament, not the least of which was the one in his own book, Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. With that listing and idea stated, Matthew sets forth on a beautiful mission to convince those of Hebrew background that this man named Jesus is in fact God's promised Messiah. He is the Christ of God. He does that in a number of ways that would have been exceedingly meaningful to those that were of Hebrew background. For instance, consider just a few of the things that might well be mentioned. What about the references to the Old Testament? We just noted a moment ago, the Hebrews were individuals who, as they served beneath the law of Moses, were of a position that each Sabbath, the various portions of what we would call the Old Testament was read to them. As they listened to those prophecies, they needed to be convinced that in the life of this man named Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that which we've heard for centuries. Matthew thus meticulously and well over 100 times quotes or at least makes allusion to the Old Testament and says this is that which was spoken by the prophet. And, this, and thus shows in the life of Christ the fulfillment of that which they had heard read on Sabbath after Sabbath. In fact, of those 100 or so references, over 50 of them are from the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah through Malachi, showing time and again that Jesus, to the pinpoint and with minute accuracy, in His life fulfilled all of them. Notice another thought, though. In addition to His quotation of the Old Testament, notice how in His genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we have the thought that Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus through David to Abraham. Who was the father of the Hebrew nation? Abraham. When he was called to leave Ur the Chaldees in Genesis 12, and later he was the very one to whom God said that all families of the earth shall be blessed through you, Genesis 22:18. The Hebrews traced their ancestry to Abraham. Later in John chapter 8, they'd say, We be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. On more than one occasion, they needed to be reminded, God can of these stones raise up children to Abraham. Even John the baptizer told them that in Matthew 3. They placed tremendous stock and importance on being able to say, We are the very those who come from the seed of Abraham. Matthew thus takes off on that idea, traces Jesus' lineage to the very one whom they considered the father of their nation. Not only that, notice also something else that would have been greatly significant to them. Some of the greatest promises of the Old Testament from the Jewish perspective was of the kingdom. They saw David as the monarch of the great kingdom of Israel, and of course Solomon his son did the same. And they looked forward to that day when that kingdom could be reestablished and again they would be prestigious and honored the world over. No wonder in Matthew's gospel account, great emphasis is laid on the kingdom. Might we begin in Matthew 3 when even John the Baptist said, Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is close. In the next chapter, our Savior echoed the same sentiment in Matthew 4, 17, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Perhaps the most notable text that might come to my mind or yours is found in the 16th chapter, when Jesus entered the coast of Caesarea Philippi and entered into a discussion. He asked, Whom do men say that I am? 
And after they responded, Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, Jesus then asked, who do you say that I am? Peter, in his naturally aggressive way, it seems, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Savior responded, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. At the opening of verse 19, Jesus, notice, said, The keys of the kingdom. The kingdom is here under discussion, and hence the ears of the Jew would perk up at such a reference. No wonder, then, is the book racist to its conclusion. We have perhaps its key passage in the very closing chapter. All powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The kingdom. We have seen not only the fact that the kingdom's existence was very shortly to be, but even the law of that kingdom was emphasized. There's a very unique section in many regards to the book of Matthew. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. We typically call it the Sermon on the Mount. How often in that did Jesus make statements to the effect, You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. He had stated what the law of Moses affirmed and then superseded that with the law of his kingdom, the law that would be in accord in that great kingdom of God, the church. No doubt as a Jew would have listened to or read a scroll of the book of Matthew by the time he reached its end, he would have been convinced mightily the fact this man is the Christ of God. This man is the very one we were looking to find. That brings us to the book of Mark. The book of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Might it be noted that this one was not written now for those of Jewish background. For in fact, very little per se in the book of Mark would have convinced them of the greatness of Christ. In fact, Mark makes very little reference to the kingdom on the whole. He makes almost no reference at all to the Old Testament. He in fact writes for those of Roman background. The Romans were the ruling power of that day, of the first century. And of course, many of the world had come to appreciate the Roman consideration of matters. A Roman individual, as we can appreciate, was a person that was a very different mindset than those that were Hebrew. Who wrote the book of Mark? Perhaps that question is self-evident as regarding its answer. It was written by the gentleman in the New Testament who was called John Mark. We see him more than once in the book of Acts. John Mark, it seems, was a close companion of Peter, as we find in 1 Peter 5, and also witnessed it to be noted that this gentleman named John Mark was a, at least a companion of Paul for a portion of the first missionary journey as recorded in Acts 13. All of that leads us to see that he was also a relative of Barnabas in Colossians 4 verse 10. You see, he had access to many who were authoritative figures in the early church and who could give him direct eyewitness information that the Holy Spirit could lead him to pen and write. All of that took place, and the benefit for us is the book of Mark. As Mark was penned for us, it was, of course, for the Roman. How do we know that? 
The Roman mindset was one of action, power. One did not beat around the bush in conversation with a Roman. He was the ruling power of the day. He wanted things direct and to the point. And to that extent, Mark's gospel account is the briefest of all of them. Only 16 chapters. And in the course of those 16 chapters, the Lord is presented perfectly and ideally suited to those of Roman background. For isn't it true that the matters are presented in this book with haste and immediacy? One of the key words, no doubt, in the book of Mark is the word immediate or immediately or straightway. Forty-one times in the course of only 16 chapters, that Greek word appears, euthios. It means to the point, immediate. Well, the Lord would work a miracle and the results were immediate. There was no delay, and that's the way Romans liked it. To that extent, this book answered the very need for convincing the Roman that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the promised one who could save them from sin. To say all of that is perhaps to say that note perhaps the emphasis of the action in the book of Mark. Though again, it's the briefest of the gospel accounts, it records roughly 20 of the Lord's miracles. What he did, how he accomplished it, there is a far less emphasis on his parables, only about a half a dozen or so in the book of Mark. As one considers the nature of those ideas, what may well be the key word, the key verse? Perhaps the last verse of chapter 7. When in that verse we see the Romans and their interest for power and their interest for action, we see very beautifully and powerfully that he, speaking of Jesus, hath done all things well. It might be that you and I have seen some individuals who can do some things well. I don't believe any of us have ever met someone who can do all things well, but Jesus could. With a, the close to the book of Mark, we can see that he would have addressed the need of the Roman individual. For he didn't quote the Old Testament, but he did assert the powerful aspects of the Lord's life. And what's more, when he did need to make reference to something that was of Old Testament nature, and though that happened few, Mark would always explain what the reference meant. As for example, in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, when reference was made to defiled hands, eating with defiled hands, Parenthetically, Mark defined it. Any Jew would have known what that meant. But Mark said in parenthesis, that is, unwashing hands. A Roman would not have known, and thus Mark identified it. To say all that is to say what a blessed book Mark is when one's interested in the power of the Lord's ministry. The things that he often accomplished so amazingly that would have indelibly been imprinted on the mind of the Roman. That brings us to the book of Luke. The third book in the New Testament, this book of Luke, truly another gem, a true remarkable thing indeed. Whereas Matthew was for the Jew, Mark for the Roman, Luke had a different audience initially in mind, but are not you and I today so blessed yet to have it. Luke was written for the Greek. When we appreciate the ancient Greek society, that one that gave to the world such individuals as Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and other great notable learned individuals. We appreciate that the person that was a Greek was scholarly in nature. He had a great appreciation for perfection. He wanted life to be lived to the highest degree to which it was possible. He wanted the mental aspect of life to be utilized in logic and power. 
we notice Jesus is presented in that very way for those that were Greek in their nature. And the book of Luke answers that so wonderfully. Luke was a physician, as we're told in the fourth chapter of Colossians. And for the book of Acts, he was a companion of Paul on more than one of the missionary journeys. He thus had another eyewitness reaction to Paul who could learn about the nature of what Jesus had done and the character of what had been revealed to, to Paul himself in that statement of Galatians 1, verses 10 and 11. For when Paul received it by revelation, he could share that, of course, with Luke, his traveling companion. Those thoughts and those ideas lead us to see in regard to Luke that Jesus is presented as the complete ideal man. No faults, no weaknesses. Perhaps the thought that illustrates that perhaps as much as other would be the way he's presented in the key passage of Luke 2, verse 52. At this point, we have a very simple but profound statement. The Greeks were of a mindset to believe that so long as a person was mentally strong and socially well and also adapted in other reasonable ways, he was a good person and a powerful citizen. There was one major thing, though, that they overlooked. I wonder what it was. Let's notice Luke 2, Luke 2 verse 52. Speaking of Jesus, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There was that aspect of association with God that the Greeks completely left out. It was, however, present in the life of Jesus. And that fourfold completion made him the ideal specimen of humanity. In Luke chapters 1 through 3, we have, in fact, something that neither Matthew, Mark, nor John record. We have the exquisite details of the virgin birth of our Savior. Though Matthew does mention it, we notice great details in chapters 1 and 2 especially. Jesus born of a virgin. Mary, the Holy Spirit, came on her, Luke 1.35. And as she gave birth, she even appreciated the grandeur and wonderful fact that he would reign on the throne of David. To say all that is perhaps to lead us to see that as Luke presented Jesus as the ideal specimen of humanity, he was in all points the very thing that the Greeks would desire to become. They could be convinced, too, that he was, in fact, the promised one. A few other things about this book are worthy of our observation. The book of Luke has a very long, unique section to it. That unique section, and it needs to be the previous one, that previous section to be noted especially in chapter 9, verse 51, up through chapter 18, we can see that many of the things of that section are unique to the book of Luke, absolutely unique. As, for example, some of the most well-known teachings and parables to be found anywhere in the gospel accounts. Where do we find the parable of the Good Samaritan? And where do we find the parable of the prodigal son? And where do we find the reference, for instance, to the rich man and Lazarus? All of them, as well as many others, are in that unique section to Luke. As that section is presented, it's descriptive of that historical place in which Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for the world. Does that make these ideas more meaningful and powerful? As his disciples hear him speak of a good Samaritan, and yet not many days later he'd give his life for them? Or that teaching about the rich man and Lazarus indelibly planting in their minds as well as ours even till today, the fact that there is existence beyond death. You and I have a choice in this life, which one will be our destiny. 
we certainly would not wish to be where that rich man was, but rather in Abraham's bosom where the poor man, where Lazarus found himself. As that unique section draws to its conclusion, might we appreciate that one of the last statements in the book, in Luke 24, verse 44, he himself stated he was a fulfillment of all that was in the Psalms, in the prophets, and in the writings concerning himself. Oh, indeed, how just like they on the road to Emmaus, our heart can burn within us when the Scriptures are open to us and we see Jesus fulfilling hundreds and hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy. As we've seen that key text of Luke 2.52, the appreciation that he is the ideal specimen, the complete specimen of humanity. As the Greeks would have been convinced of those things, it brings us to the book of John, the fourth of the Gospel accounts. As we reach the book of John, we can appreciate perhaps something very different about this book. It does not seem to read at all like either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In fact, that observation has been known for many, many centuries, and for that reason, the first three books of the New Testament are sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels. That's just a rather fancy word that means similar. There are many similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One can find references in many instances to the same miracle, perhaps, or to some particular location or event in a city. But it is not so often with John. John was written much later than the other three. John's gospel account, it appears, was written very near the end of the first century, perhaps at least some 30 years after any of the other three. Well, not only that, this book emphasizes something very different than the others. It wasn't written for any one specific group of people, it would seem. Rather, it was written for all humanity, and it emphasizes not only the divinity of Jesus, but his personal interest in each and every individual. Isn't that wonderful? That as great as God is, and as great as the Lord is, nonetheless, he knows every one of us, and he's interested in our eternal well-being, and John's gospel account highlights that thought. Notice with me just a few of the things that might be said about this book of John. As the divinity of Jesus is emphasized, and as that point is put before us, I thought it worthy to at least make note of how that divinity is emphasized in chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Perhaps that's a text familiar to, to several of us, where we learn there that Jesus' history goes back beyond Abraham. It goes back even beyond Adam. It goes back, you see, to his pre-eternal nature. He was with God in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice, this Word, as later we're told Jesus, was with God in the very beginning. He is traced back, you see, even before time itself. Not only his divinity and his eternal nature, that personal interest to which we referred a moment ago, Think how many times in this book Jesus had direct dealings with a single individual. In chapter 3, a man came to Jesus by night. The Lord didn't send him away and said, I'm too sleepy. He took the time to speak with Nicodemus. And he shared with him some of the greatest things, no doubt, that man would ever hear in his life. Apparently, it so touched him that we learn later Nicodemus became a disciple of the Lord. In the very next chapter, a woman at a well in Sychar, the Lord took the time to speak with her and to even rebuke her for some things in her life, but to share with her the greatness of who he was. He admitted to that woman that he was the Messiah. John 4, verse 26. Might we also notice, as we go forward in that book, some other instances. In John 8, 
a woman taken in adultery, and although everyone else had gone away when they were unwilling to cast the first stone, Jesus entered into discussion with her. In John chapter 9, there a man born blind also was hauled before Christ, and the Lord shared with him in powerful means the nature of the message he most needed to hear. In John chapter 11, he raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. And it seems on and on one could go. May you and I never forget, the Lord does know about you and me personally, and he cares about us. Some other things about the book of John. Perhaps it's a shock when we first appreciate the book of John contains not one single parable. John doesn't record the parables. Not one of them is found in that gospel account. There's not even that many miracles, in fact. Rather, what does John emphasize? Sermons, discourses, the lengthy conversations that Jesus had with individuals and with small groups. As we noted, almost all of chapter 3 is his discussion with Nicodemus. In chapter 4, a lengthy chapter in which he discusses with that lady the well, at, the, at the well in Sychar. In chapter 5, a lengthy discussion with a group of Jews who were challenging him. Perhaps one can consider that on. But finally, might, might we make note how that John, perhaps more so than the other gospel accounts, lays a special emphasis on the last few hours of Jesus' life in the flesh. John only has 21 chapters, and yet starting at chapter 13 and going all the way through chapter 20, those eight chapters are in fact discuss the last 15 hours of the Lord's life. Eight chapters for 15 hours. Some various false teachings had arisen by the time John wrote that book, and the emphasis on those aspects of those chapters could help defeat those false teachings. They would in fact put to naught the Gnostic heresy that the Lord truly didn't die. Well, he did die. He was crucified on a cross, and he spent an agonizing night in Gethsemane the night before. John emphasizes all of that. And may you and I be so greatly touched and benefited by observing the same. The key passage in the book, almost certainly, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to heaven. He asserted it, so powerfully stated, not only in his life, but also in the words of that text. And may you and I appreciate the thrust of it as well. As we reach near the close of the gospel accounts, perhaps it'd be fair to say that the objective and theme of all four of them is the very text Brother Eddie read for us earlier this morning. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, Truly many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The Holy Spirit saw fit to record what needed to be recorded to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. May we read and study the gospel accounts with fervor and great interest. And as they bring us to the next book, the book of Acts, they have only set the stage for what is it we have seen in these four gospel accounts. They are testimonies to the life of Christ. The obvious question then that would follow, what does that mean for me and for you? How can I personally benefit from that life? What does it mean for benefit for my life and yours? The book of Acts begins to answer that question. Just as surely as we've studied then the character of these four gospel accounts, might we note that all four of them close by giving us a record of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. The grave was not the end, and just as surely as it was not the end for him, it shall not be the end for us. We too can look forward to great interest in that morning of resurrection when, just as he was raised, so too shall we be. But may our resurrection be not to the resurrection of damnation, but to the resurrection of life, John 5, 28 and 9. 
the book of Acts begins to prepare us for that, for what does Acts accomplish. It, influ it chronicles the influence of that life of Christ, and it does so in the following way. It testifies of the success of that life as it was embodied in the life and work of those apostles and the others that they converted to Christianity, those to whom they preached the beautiful message of the gospel. The key passage, the key division, if you will, of the book of Acts comes in the eighth verse of the opening chapter. For one can divide the book by what you see in that verse. Jesus, right before he ascended to the Father, told those apostles, You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's a good way to remember the division of the book of Acts. For in fact, starting in Jerusalem, we see the events of chapters 1 through 7 took place in Jerusalem. Starting in chapter 8, we notice there that Judea and Samaria come into play. The apostles, specifically some deacons by the name of Philip and others, began to work in that area. Ultimately, we come to chapter 13, the missionary journeys of Paul. There, the uttermost part of the earth. As the book is considered and categorized in that fashion, might we see that there are three principal elements that we can extract from the book of Acts. First, the establishment of the church. That kingdom prophesied from the days of the long Old Testament came to fruition in the second chapter of Acts when the church became a reality. God's kingdom on earth was now in existence. As the church was established, men flocked and flooded into it. We, in fact, see throughout that book the greatness of the conversion accounts, which is the second major thrust of the book. When you and I need to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Acts 2.38. Or the same question in Acts 16, verse 30. We now have the answer. What did they do in the first century to be saved? If we do today what they did then, as we've often noted, we will become today what they became then. We learn that they heard the word. They believed Jesus to be the Son of God. They repented of their sins. They confessed Jesus' name audibly as their Savior, Acts 8.37, and they were baptized for the remission of sins. Not one exception throughout the whole book. As we look at the conversion accounts and we see what they did, we learn the gigantic lesson that we must do the same. And then the third great theme of this book is its historical character. So many of the books of the New Testament find their historical setting in the book of Acts. For example, when we come to, for instance, study the Corinthian letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, we'll find that we would do well to revisit Acts the 18th chapter, when the gospel first came to Corinth, when Paul preached it there, on the marvelous character of the second and third missionary journeys. When we come to study, for instance, the book of Ephesians, we should study Acts 19 first, for the gospel first came to Ephesus, and that laid the groundwork for the church that would later be established there. When we study, for instance, the books of Philippians, we also should appreciate that we should study Acts 16 first when the gospel first came to Philippi on the second missionary journey. That's just a sampling of what would do us well as we study the New Testament and put in place the various books and things that, that you and I see. One gigantic, beautiful thing as we perhaps come near the close of our lesson today, the recognition that in this history of the book of Acts, we are first brought into the consideration of seeing a man named Saul, who would later be called Paul. His conversion is given to us in three scintillating chapters, chapters 9, 22, and 26. And this man that's converted from Judaism to Christianity will be its most powerful defender. 
He will ultimately write about half the New Testament. And his life will go down in history as a great chronicle of one whose life was converted to Jesus and who himself was assured of the very fact that there was a crown of life awaiting. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. The book of Acts tells us that the gospel is for all. Chapters 2 and 10 bring the gospel to both Jew and Gentile alike, and thus you and I can stand at the foot of the cross and accept the blessed salvation of God. These things have perhaps brought us to the conclusion of our lesson. The Bible is the most wonderful book of all. In our study and appreciation of it, we must rightly divide it. And in that interest, we're going to overview the books of the New Testament. We've looked at the first five of them today. The life of Christ has been set before us in all the beauty and detail that we need. And what it means for us in the book of Acts has also been presented. The personal question for us is, have you and I benefited from that life of Jesus? Have you become a Christian? If you haven't, please understand that to be almost saved is to be altogether lost. It does you no good to be near to the kingdom of God. You need to be in it. Friend, have you obeyed the gospel today? If you haven't, realize that plan of salvation is for you. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess the name of Christ and be baptized. If we could be of assistance to you in doing that, we would certainly enjoy so doing. If you need to return to your first love, come forward. If those sins have been public in nature, let others know of your change of mind, your repentance, if you will. And in so doing, we also will pray on your behalf. If we could be of help to anyone today, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?